Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Mikhail Palner. Mikhail is a neuroscientist based out of Denmark, and his lab is trying to understand the neuronal circuits involved in things like obsessive compulsive disorder and anxiety. So they look a lot at how stress affects animals, how it affects their behavior and their brain, how stress can lead to things like compulsive behaviors and anxiety, and they look at how drugs affect the brain and behavior in animals. Uh, in particular, they're interested in drugs that might be used to treat things like OCD or anxiety. Recently, they've started looking at psychedelic um, they've looked at a variety of psychedelics, but they've published some interesting work recently about psilocybin. And his lab developed a microdosing protocol for rats where they gave them small doses of psilocybin over an extended period of time and looked at how that affected their brain and their behavior. And so they mapped out some really interesting things. And they found that uh, microdoses of psilocybin given every other day for about three weeks lead to changes in behavior and they lead to changes in the brain, changes in the expression of different serotonin receptors in particular parts of the brain and things like that. So if if you're interested in psychedelics and microdosing in particular, this is a really interesting episode. Uh, Mikhail's lab has done some of the only work that's out there right now looking at microdosing in animals and really mapping out if and what specifically it's doing in terms of the, the neurobiology at work here. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing, please like, share, and subscribe. You can sign up for my free weekly newsletter at mindandmatter.substack.com. On my Substack, you'll find all the podcast episodes, links to transcripts, show notes, uh, video and audio formats, as well as long-form science writing, which synthesizes uh, the various topics that I tend to cover on the show. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. And with that, Here's my conversation with Dr. Mikhail Palmer. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, where are you uh, joining me from? So I'm joining you from uh, from Denmark uh, and uh, more closely uh, Copenhagen, where I live. But my uh, my research lab is in Odense in the central part of Denmark. And uh, what uh, what's your scientific background and what is your lab study? Um, so my lab studies uh, anxiety and uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and neuronal circuits related to that. 
Um, and it's actually a, quite, of a, uh, quite of a journey from where I started out. I started out as an organic chemist and did my bachelor in organic chemistry. And then I did uh, a master in bio, uh, bioengineering, uh, so biotechnology engineering. Um, and from there on, I then took uh, neuroscience and became interested in uh, pet imaging and um, other kinds of uh, yeah whole brain imaging methods. And, so, uh, what, what are some yeah. of the methods? Uh, what are some of the main technologies and, and methodologies that your lab is using today? So, uh, the, the the main overall uh, method we're using is pet imaging of uh, small animals. And so, so that's positron emission tomography. Yes, exactly. So uh, you have a, a a radio labeled drug, so a drug that has a, a radio uh, isotope on it that decays into uh, electrons, and then when two electrons meet, they shoot out two positrons, and then we uh, or two photons, and then we can measure those. Or it decays with a positron and shoots out. Um, these two photons that, that you can measure. I see. So, so at, at a high level, what would be an example of how, how you use that experimentally in animals? Um, exactly as in humans. So that's the beauty of the technique is that it's uh, completely translate translational. Uh, you use it a lot in humans, uh, mostly in cancer research at the moment, uh, because they, we have some very good tracers to discover cancer when a person comes in and they get scanned. But you can also use... Uh, other compounds to study the whole brain and the brain function. And one of the most used uh, tracers is a radio lab labeled glucose uh, derivative. So it's just sugar with a radio isotope on it. And because the brain uses so much sugar, uh, then you can actually inject this. And then in, in people, you can see how much sugar are you using in different areas of your brain. Uh, and then that correlates into how active is that brain area compared compared to other areas. Mm. So, so in the case of like a, a drug, if you had a radio labeled drug and you give it to an animal, you can you would be able to see to visualize where exactly in the brain that drug is going. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I I spend a good time of my PhD actually uh, uh, developing one of the first or being part of the team that developed one of the first. Uh, uh, two of the first uh, PET tracers for the serotonergic 5-HT2A receptor. So we had uh, the first one we developed was uh, called MHMZ, which is an antagonist of the 5-HT2A receptor. So that's a serotonergic receptor. And the second one we uh, I helped develop was called SIMB36, which is another, yeah, an, an agonist of the, of the 5-HT2A receptor. So then you can visualize where are all these serotonergic receptors in the brain. If you inject this drug, it will bind to these receptors, and you can get a, a map of the of the brain. Where are these uh, receptors in the brain? And so, what kind of uh, like what kind of spatial resolution do you get with PET imaging? Can you see down to the level of individual synapses, or or is it uh, uh, more coarse grained than that? No, it's more coarse grained. We can get down to about uh, one millimeter at best. And then, so, and my lab and I, we study uh, rodents and rats uh, primarily. So it, the resolution is uh, isn't super great, but it's uh, it's more uh, functional and molecular than other techniques. So when we can see uh, 
when we can see, for example, the 5-HT2A, the serotonergic receptor, we can also compete with other drugs. And then you can actually see if I have this drug that binds to the receptor and I give this other drug that also binds to this receptor, then they will compete for binding. And then you will see a decrease in binding over time if you if you if they compete with each other. So that's that's actually really useful if you want to figure out is this drug going to the brain? Is it binding to the right target in the brain? Yeah. I see. Yeah. So so by so by giving both of those things and using the PET imaging, you can see to to with some resolu- spatial resolution where the drug is going. But then you can also measure um, how much it's occupying a given receptor. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and and if you have the big regions like uh, frontal cortex, you don't really need uh, a lot of resolution. You will still be able to quantitatively measure how many receptors there are and how much uh, is this drug occupying different kinds of receptors. And so you said your your lab studies anxiety um, from a neurobiological perspective. Can you just talk a little bit about like what is anxiety and and what what sort of purpose? What, why do animals feel anxiety? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's quite interesting because if you look at anxiety and in animals, you actually have neurons sitting that are responsive to different kinds of anxiety. Um, I always use this example uh, from people that have been looking at uh, the, the fear of heights in mice and they measured the, they lifted up the mouse from the table and then they saw certain neurons in the amygdala was firing when they lifted it up high and when they didn't lift it up they were not firing so you have these uh, receptors sitting in the amygdala or uh, neurons sitting in the amygdala that are responsive to different kinds of dangers in your environment and they try to predict if things are dangerous for you Uh, and then they tell the rest of the brain ah this could be potentially dangerous you have to look out and then if you go a step further and you, for example, are uh, experienced in post-traumatic stress syndrome, then it's a different kind of thing that goes on. You have a, a conditioning. So if you have Ivan, Ivan Pavlov, uh, the famous Russian um, psychiatrist who did this uh, experiment with dogs where he had uh, wanted to feed his dogs on the same time or at the same time he had a many dogs, then he was ringing a bell. And then he noticed that the dogs were actually starting to gruel before they got fed uh, just by hearing the bell. And that's uh, uh, called a conditioning. So uh, we can do that in um, in anxiety research as well. You can look at something called fear conditioning, where you then prime an animal uh, to the sound of a noise and to a foot shock. And then after a while, it will uh, respond to the sound of the noise as if it had the foot shock, but doesn't get the foot shock. And that's kind of some of the same things that are going on with if you get PTSD, for example, if you are a soldier going out and you, and and you are in a yeah in a stressful environment and you get a, a fear response and then you couple that with something else that goes on. You could be driving uh, past a bakery shop and smell the smell of fresh bread and then you couple those two together, which are a stimuli that's not. Um, not dangerous with a stimuli that is actually uh, very dangerous and then they get coupled together. And what are, so when we think about things like stress and anxiety in the brain and how they're generated, what are some of like the, the brain regions and the circuits 
that you've looked at or that you've studied that are important for either creating or or getting rid of anxiety? Yeah, Mykdala is uh, generally seen as one of the most important areas, but actually hippocampus, we know, is a, a region that is really important in, in retrieving and storing memories. So that also plays a big role. And then all of the frontal cortex uh, uh, is really really key because you can you can actually con- control a lot of your own anxiety just by convincing yourself that uh, there is no monsters under the bed uh, because I have never seen a monster um, that's what I told my daughter a couple of uh, minutes ago <laughs> uh, and then you can reason yourself into believing okay if I never seen a monster why should there be a monster under my bed and then you can actually lower your anxiety in that way so the frontal cortex has a lot to say I see. So the frontal cortex can provide a a different kind of feedback to these other circuits and places like the amygdala that you might say are more responsible for generating the anxiety, um, but the frontal cortex is maybe involved more in um, inhibiting that response as you learn what actually is or is not dangerous. Yes. Also the other way around, it can also be the reading that tells tells you that a lot of things uh, that's that that isn't true for example oh if you have obsessions you will also get them uh, generated in some areas of the of the cortical regions and they will go down and then become ruminations and obsessions Mm. and that i mean i think that probably ties into the work that you do for obsessive uh compulsive disorder and compulsive behaviors in animals so why is it how do we start to think about that why is it that you, um, you know, and my understanding is animals will often show compulsive behaviors, not always, but oftentimes in response to a strong stressor or in response to chronic stress. Mm-hmm. And so w- what is that relationship between stress and anxiety on the one hand, and these repetitive compulsive behaviors that you sometimes see? Yeah, you, you notice repetitive behaviors in many animals. So if you go to an old zoo where they don't have enough space, you will see they go around in the same circle all the time. Uh, but we can also measure that uh, in in less stressful ways, they will also groom. Um, so you can, if you induce uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, they will actually groom so much that their hairs are getting, uh, they lose their hair. So you can watch this uh, innate behavior that I kind of, uh, I put it in the same box as humans are checking their phone. So. So you you are checking your phone. Um, you know there's no notifications, but you do it anyway because you're bored and you just check it. The same thing. Rodents will just if they sit in a corner and they have nothing to do, they will just uh, groom their their fur and and have a nice time about it. And then you can see if that goes up. Uh, it usually goes up if they're stressed. So if you stress them, then they will, they will groom more. Or if they um, are less stressed, it will usually go down. I see. Is this is this sort of so like, like grooming is basically an innate behavior. Um, all animals have different types of grooming behavior. So you know, we see our cats and dogs doing this all the time. Mice do it. We do it. You know, and, and immediately when you think of something like OCD, right? You think of classic examples like someone obsessively washing their hands over and over again, or you just think about someone who you know bites their nails when they're feeling anxious. Um, these are all sort of. Mm, there's even cool. studies that have shown that if uh, if I start to talk to you about uh, lice or something, then you will start to actually begin to touch your hair and <laughs> and scratch, and you will do that more if I if I talk a lot about that. So um, 
Yes, you can induce it in humans as well, actually. Hmm. And, and how do we start to think about this? Is it, is it maybe one way to think about it that like grooming behavior is sort of inherently or innately um, reduces anxiety? It feels, you know, animals presumably feel good or it fe- you know, feels good when we wash ourselves, we get clean, we groom ourselves. Is, is it sort of a, a natural anxiolytic behavior? And that's maybe why it gets coupled to stress and anxiety responses because it's it's sort of a behavioral attempt of the animal to ameliorate whatever stressor it's encountering. That that could be really nice if we could ask them and figure that out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, It it could be. Yeah. So if it feels good and you can lower your anxiety by doing something or stress that, uh, that feels good, that it could be a a natural way of lowering your, your own uh, stress level. And so how do you how do you measure in animals something like stress or something like a compulsive behavior? What does that look like experimentally? We video record their grooming and then we uh, assess how much they groom. Uh, but then at the same time, we also do other kinds of animal behavior measurements, like having a, an elevated plus mace, for example, that's a, a, a big X where they're lifted up from the ground and you have two arms that are closed and two arms that are open. And then you can measure how much are they actually venturing out in the open space compared to being in in the closed space. And then you can can see if they are more or less anxious. Um, the same thing you can do in an, a big square where you can see how much do they venture into the center of the square compared to how much do they venture out in the corners of the square. Mm-hmm. But then we, we also use uh, pet imaging and looking at some of these circuits for compulsive behavior. Um, one of the circuits is called the corticostriatal thalamal cortical circuit. And you have, uh, as I said before, you have the cortical regions that are giving a lot of signals down to another region in the brain that's called the striatum. And down in the striatum, you have two kinds, two principal kinds of neurons that uh, respond to dopamine. So they're called the dopamine D1 positive neurons and the dopamine D2 positive neurons. And they are actually sending signals down to the midbrain. And the really interesting thing here is if you turn on one of these, then you will also turn on grooming. But if you turn on the other one, then you will lower grooming. So Mm. these two, uh, the ratio between the turning on and shutting down of these two pathways are actually very uh, much involved in grooming behavior. I see. So then I I would imagine that the levels of stress or anxiety that an animal is facing are going to tune that ratio somehow. Yeah. Yeah. You will definitely get some dopamine release into that whole thing. And then you can actually see how much are they binding to the D2 and D1 receptors and how much grooming are they doing? And this, uh, this dopamine release will be also a kind of a stressor for the animal. (laughs) And so in humans and in animals, when you have something like obsessive compulsive disorder, what are the most effective treatments we have in terms of drugs that are used? How well do they work and, and what are they doing? What is their, uh, what, what is like their pharmacology? Yeah, right now, unfortunately, we don't have very many options. Um, the most prescribed one is uh, uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs or antidepressants. Um, and then you give them in a very high dose uh for the obsessive compulsive disorder. So they actually have uh, a lot more side effects uh, than reported than people with depression normally do. Um, and a lot of the time, it, they are not really that effective. So they can lower some of the anxiety. 
but they don't really do anything about the obsessions and the thought patterns you, you get. Then, uh, so in the new uh, drug realm, we're getting, uh, we're seeing some papers coming out with the uh, psilocybin and this uh, psychedelic drug and seeing that this may be a way to ameliorate some of the of the symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorder. And so, um, I, I mean, have, have very many studies been done demonstrating that, or is that something mostly that people are reporting anecdotally at this point? There hasn't been a lot of studies. Uh, it's mainly anecdotal, but back in uh, back before psychedelics and psilocybin was a thing, uh, the first clinical study that actually came out was uh, from some people, um, uh, Moreno et al. I can't remember his uh, his first name, but they studied OCD with psilocybin and showed uh, showed very good uh, effects on that. Uh, when, when was that? Was that quite a while ago? It's in 2008, I think. Oh, okay. Okay, so there's there's some indication here in the literature, some hints. There's also two clinical trials going on right now, so um, there are a little bit of uh, things going on. Yeah. Yep, yep. And so, um, so there's some reason to think that psilocybin could be effective for treating um, compulsive disorders, and and you guys have started started to study it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, both in, in high doses, actually, but also uh, we recently published a paper on, on microdoses of psilocybin and looked at the compulsive behavior and anxiety and stress levels. Hmm. So what, what is the phenomenon of psychedelic microdosing and what, what have people been saying about it? Uh, the phenomenon really took off in Silicon Valley in 2000. 12 to 14-ish, uh, where a lot of people were trying to get in on this uh, productivity wave of being uh, focused and productive in the tech uh, environment. And then they took up taking uh, small amounts that are non-psychedelic <clears throat> of uh, psychedelic drugs. And that could be both LSD, that could be psilocybin or other types of uh, psychedelic drugs. And they would take them uh Often they would take them every second or every third day, and then they would report uh, benefits to focus and uh, stress. And um, basically, uh, the internet was starting to blow up with the good things that could happen when you microdosed. Uh, if it's <laughs> if you feel you can get better from this, you can probably find somebody who said they got better from it. So there, there was a lot of. Uh, of reports and it wasn't um, really clear what it was doing. So I got excited about it a little bit and thought we have to figure out what is what in this uh, story. Uh, Usually when you have so many uh, positive stories and anecdotes, there is some truth to to it. You just have to figure out what it is. So we started to study that in uh, in rats and then uh, came out with some positive results recently. So, so before we unpack your work, has any work on microdosing been done in humans? And if so, what has that looked like so far? There's actually been quite a few studies, but they're mostly uh, retrospective studies. So they have been um, like questionnaires or looking at Reddit and seeing what people have been have, have reported. And from those studies, you have, you have seen a tendency to a positive mood and a, a 
somehow mixed feelings with anxiety and then a lot of people have also reported a positive improvement in compulsive uh, behaviors then there's been a few uh, studies where they have looked at one or two doses of very low doses of psilocybin in in humans and they have measured a lot of things um, and that actually seems that if you take a, a sub-perceptional dose of psilocybin, you actually get uh, impaired working memory. So you, you, it doesn't improve your focus and it doesn't improve your working memory, at least not while the drug is working. I see. It, it also makes sense in my head. I don't know um, if people have tried psilocybin and tried to, to do a Sudoku at the same time. It probably <laughs> doesn't work out very well. Um, so if we are going to take the premise that a small dose of the drug does the same as a large dose of the drug, just less, then it makes sense that you're not, you're not yeah. gaining anything and yeah. not gaining focus from this. Yeah. But you know, a couple of things could, could be true um, in theory, right? The small dose might not do the exact same thing as a large dose. Um, yeah. That's very common with psychoactive drugs that different doses do very different things sometimes. Um, it could also be that right. If you're chronically administering a low dose of the drug every second or third day, the benefit might not actually come with the acute drug effects. Yes. It could be exactly. some other effect that you measure in the in the intervening time. Yeah, yeah. So what we did in the study was also yeah looking at uh, we didn't look at the acute effects. Uh, so we looked at all the effects that were happening one or two days after we ended the drug treatment. Um, so 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 maybe, but maybe we want to go. Do you want me to yeah, explain the study first and then we can go into the details of what we have done? Because I think... Uh, yeah, let's do that. So yeah, yeah, just starting out, like, so you're going to give microdoses of psilocybin to rats. How, you know, what is, a, what is a microdose compared to a macrodose for a rat? And how are you guys determining what dose you should be using and whether or not it's a microdose? Exactly. We, we can't ask the rat if it has a... a big trip or doesn't feel the effect of psilocybin so we actually had to rely on on what we what i developed during my phd and earlier uh, using the pet tracers and then we had to give psilocybin and give this uh, drug that was a radioactive drug that was binding to the 5-HT2A receptor and if we give a, a large dose of psilocybin we can see that it almost competes out the drug or the radioisotope completely so we don't we, we get a really big drop in the binding of the radioisotope and don't see any uh, of that in the brain. So we can calculate how much do we need to occupy the receptor in order to have just a small dose of the drug of psilocybin binding to the same receptor. I see. So, you, so does you that make, it, yeah, does that yes. make sense? Yeah. yeah, you can, you can give this radioactive drug to the animal. Um, it doesn't do anything in terms of like psychoactivity. It allows you to see where in the brain this thing is going. In this case, it's a drug that binds to the serotonin 2A receptor, which is the same one that's going to be responsible for the psychedelic effects of psilocybin. So then what you guys do is you can give different doses of psilocybin and the higher the dose, the more it competes with that radio labeled ligand for the 5-HG2A receptor. And so by looking at how much uh, of that signal goes away, you can see exactly how much of the receptor is occupied by the yes. drug. And I guess by using that approach, you can you can settle on a dose where the animals don't sh probably show obvious behavioral signs of of tripping or whatever. And also, you can calculate literally like that only a small percentage of the receptors are being occupied by psilocybin. 
Yeah, the, the good thing was that one of my friends, uh, Martin Madsen, did a, did a study in humans in the exact same way. Mm. And there they were looking at the occupancy at the 5-HT2A receptor of psilocin. And then they were asking them questions at the same time. How intense is your psychedelic experience? And then they could correlate the occupancy with the psychedelic experience and figure out what is the threshold of occupancy towards psychedelic experience. And they figured out that if you have below about 20% occupancy of the receptor, then you don't really have a psychedelic experience. Mm. So we used that, the data from humans, and said, okay, we need to be below 20% occupancy in the rat in order to not have it um, as a psychedelic dose. I see. So so you give a low dose that's below 20% serotonin to a receptor occupancy. Um, when you give that dose compared to a larger dose, what differences do the animals display behaviorally? So if you give a high dose to rodents um, and mice in particular, they will make a, a really nice behavior that is uh, shaking their head called the head twitch, twitch response. Rats do the same, but not to the same extent but we can still measure it. And if you give a high dose, they will do a certain amount of, uh, it's called wet back shakes in rats. And then they will shake their body like a, yeah, having a wet, a wet dog that shakes uh, their yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. And you can count that. And then when we give a low dose here, they, we don't see that behavior. So we're not inducing any uh, psychoactivity on the rats uh, at, at this level. I see. So you see, you can measure behavioral differences directly. You can measure the serotonin to a receptor occupancy of the drug. And then you also know from the human studies that, you know, below approximately 20%, people don't report psychedelic effects. And so all of those things sort of match up. Yes. And then we have a non-psychedelic dose in rats yeah, yep. that we can use to treat them with uh, over a period of time. So we chose to treat them for three weeks mm -hmm. because we knew from the literature that uh, some of the positive effects of um, of microdosing weren't seen until a, at least a couple of weeks. Uh, so we chose to treat them for three weeks and then we looked at behavior uh, following uh, mm -hmm. the end of the three weeks. And is this, is this one microdose per day? It's one dose every second day. Every second day. So every other day for three weeks. The yeah. rats are getting a microdose of psilocybin. And that was basically also just, uh, we had to choose uh, between every second day and every third day. And um, the rats have a little bit faster metabolism. So we thought that every second day would be good. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, so, so in what context were you doing this? What, what kinds of experiments did you do? And, and what did you see? Following the, the three weeks, we did the uh, elevated plus uh, a maze that I was just talking about before, where you can have the look at anxiety. And then we were looking at uh, the open field test where the animals are running around in the corners or venturing into the middle. And we can also measure how much they're grooming at the same time. And then we did uh, another test that's called a sucrose preference test. So that means that you, uh, you present the animal, you teach it to like sucrose water. Um, that is uh, 1% sugar in normal drinking water. And they tend to really like it once they get to know it. Um, and then you present two bottles to them. Um, you And then you present them for 12 hours and they have uh, the free access to the two bottles of water. And then you can see how much do they drink. 
And usually they drink 70% of the sucrose water and 30% of the normal water. If they then start to not drink sucrose water, so go, go down in sucrose water, preference over normal water, then we say that they have an anhedonic phenotype. That means that they are, they are not feeling pleasure in the same way as they used to. I see. So anhedonia would be, yeah, not seeking out pleasure as much as you normally do. And that would be, that, that's something that's associated with like major depression, say. Yes, exactly. I see. Oh, yeah. Stress in general or uh, other types of uh, psychiatric diseases as well. <laughs> um, and so, so what were the basic results in terms of the effects of this three week, every other day microdose treatment? So here we, we, we didn't see anything, actually, when we gave them a microdose. And that was uh, good because we, we hoped they won't get, uh, wouldn't get anhedonic. But what we did see was that in the control animals, where we are in, so you got to remember we are injecting uh, psilocybin or saline uh, under the skin because we're not feeding them uh, through the mouth. Oh, so we're that's, injecting that's the probably same stressful. Dose that is a stressful experience so if you have a, a every second day has a, an injection under the skin it will hurt a little bit it will be stressful it's not something they like um, but then we see that the animals that are getting saline are actually getting anhedonic and doesn't prefer the sugar the sugar sugar water over the normal water anymore and the microdosing animals doesn't care they actually prefer them at the same amount uh, all over the time. So they don't get the same effect from the stress that we are inducing to the animals uh, as the control animals do. I see. So so in, in your hands, the microdose of psilocybin seem to protect against just the stress of the experimental conditions themselves. Exactly. Yes. And that why that may also be why we don't see anything when, when you do this in animal on people. So you don't get less stressed, but you don't get as stressed from stressors. Yeah. <laughs> right. So yeah, it's a subtle uh, but important difference. Yeah. Yes. I see. Yeah. So you would have to, uh, you know, if this is a robust effect, you, you would have to, when you make these measurements, whether in humans or animals, you actually have to give them some kind of stressor to see how resilient they are. Yes, exactly. Uh, and did you, any other differences between the two groups? And then following that, we were looking at the compulsive behavior, and particularly we were looking at the grooming, uh, because we know that that was a part of the the compulsive actions of a of a rodent. And here we saw that they had a, a lower frequency of grooming, but they groomed the same amount of time actually, but they were just uh, not doing it as often as the as the control animals. I see. So like a normal animal, you know, every so often, every few seconds or whatever, it will groom and it'll say scratch itself i don't know 12 times on average and it might do uh 10 little 12 scratch bouts per hour or something and so yes. every time they groomed they groomed sort of the same way the same amount but the frequency of events grooming events decreased in, in the microdosing exactly yes and that is very tied to, as I said, we had dopamine before, but also to stress. So we know that if they are more stressed, they will groom more. If they're less stressed, they will groom less. So it could be an effect of the stress, but it, it is also an effect, just a positive effect on compulsive actions of the rat um, that we see. A very uh, yeah light kind of compulsive actions. So we haven't measured uh, 
repetitive tapping, you can measure that on a on a lever press. So if they learn to press a lever press and you can measure how many times do they do that, they can go around and just press it compulsively at the end or run in circles or some mice are actually doing somersaults just all the time. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, but those are really uh, uh, big compulsive behaviors that you can induce with drugs and stuff like that. But here we were just looking in normal animals, actually, and saw a re- reduction. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you, you have these behavioral differences that you can see that are related to things like stress and anxiety. Um, did you look at anything inside the brain? Like, what was was anything changing inside the brain? Yeah, that's 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 the good thing about working with animals is that we can actually take out the brain afterwards, and then we can look at specific markers in the brain. And we looked at all the most of the serotonin receptors and the receptor levels in the brain. So we looked at the five ac two a receptor because we know if we give a drug repeatedly, if you take high doses of a psychedelic drug repeatedly, then you will have a a down regulation of the five eight or the the five ac two a receptor that they are targeting. Mm-hmm. So it will uh, downregulate over time, and that's presumably why you know people who take psychedelics recreationally, if they take a, a, a psychedelic dose of psilocybin, say they need to take a lot. They they report that the effects are diminished for some number of days afterwards, and presumably that's because of this effect where the large dose causes your cells to get rid of some of those serotonin receptors for a while. Yes, yeah, it, it's called tolerance. You build up uh, tolerance to the drug, and you need more and more and more uh, in order to, but we measured that and with this microdose regime that we see here we didn't see any of this build up they actually had the same amount of receptors afterwards they also had the same amount of head twitches if they gave, if we gave them a high dose afterwards mm. so we were fairly certain that there was no tolerance build up uh, at this level then we looked at it at a, other kinds of uh, receptors as well uh, i didn't really see much until we looked uh, for the 5 receptor in the thalamus so inside the thalamus region, it's also part of this uh, corticostriatal thalamocortical circuit that I talked about before. So that's why we, we went and looked in the thalamus. And we know that it's involved in uh, sorting out what to do and what to act on and sorting out uh, what kind of senses come into the brain and what kind of senses should we do something about. So it's kind of like a filter for the brain. And here we actually saw an increase of these 5-HC7 receptors. And the 5-HC7 receptors is sitting, so if you have two neurons that are connected, then you will have the uh, the transmitting neuron ends up in an axon that then uh, meets in a synapse. And the 5-HC7 receptors are sitting on the end feet of these axons and then controlling how much is released um, of neurotransmitter. So as opposed, so the serotonin two A receptor is different in that respect. It tends to be on the dendrites, on the receiving yes. neuron. You're saying the five HG seven receptor tends to be on the the sender neuron, the axon terminal of the the neuron sending a signal to another one. And what do we know about five HG seven receptors? Uh, what are they linked with? We don't know much about them other than uh, some of the new antidepressive drugs actually also have 5-HT7 affi- uh, affinity. So they're also binding to these uh, these receptors and they do seem to be better than the, uh, the old generation of uh, antidepressive drugs. Uh, but other than that, we don't know a lot about it other than it's highly expressed in the thalamus um, and not a lot of other places in the brain. 
Okay. And you said after the micro, so after the every other day, three week microdosing psilocybin protocol, you saw, did you say you saw a reduction of expression of this receptor? Oh, we saw an increase in uh, increase. Okay. Yeah. And is that, we, did you, were you able to tie that to behavioral changes at all? Uh, we didn't look at correlation between these two things. Uh, I don't think we have enough animals to actually say something about the correlation between those things. We have uh, in this experiment, 16 in the biggest group um, of animals where we did both measurements. Um, but we did tie it to another uh, marker of synaptic plasticity that's called the SV2A, which is mm. a synaptic vesicle 2A, which is sitting in the axons as well and help put neurotransmitter back into the vesicles b before it's going to be released into the synaptic cleft. And this kind this target is uh, is also upregulated in these animals in the thalamus, but not in the cortex and not in the hippocampus. I see. So we can actually see that the, the effect here in the thalamus is actually pretty uh, robust because we have two markers that are going in the same direction. Mm -hmm. And so I would say overall, it sounds like, so you've, you've established a sort of bona fide microdose in rats. Um, it doesn't give the behavioral effects that a, that a larger dose does. It doesn't result in tolerance. You've measured the receptor occupancy of the drug and you've kept it under a certain amount. So it's, so it's a, a real microdose, it seems. And doing that chronically for three weeks every other day gives you both behavioral changes that you can measure in, in what the animal's doing, as well as these molecular changes, changes in, in receptor expression at synapses. And so um, something is clearly happening in the brain in response to a microdose. What... Um, do you, do you think that makes it more plausible than it was before that something is actually happening when humans are microdosing? I think something is happening. Uh, it's it's a matter of if you if you can feel it. Uh, I think so. Think about it like this: if you are perfectly happy and going around your day and not really getting a lot of stressors on your life, and you are you are yet yeah, just normal uh quote uh or or happy then i don't think you will see a big effect because you are not getting all this stress into your life and getting the stressors in uh, but maybe if we find some patient population or some population of people where they are uh, really uh, they're feeling a lot of stress and maybe they're feeling the stressors more than other people i think in that uh, portion of people it may be effective uh to a higher degree than in other people. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it might, you know, this is speculation, but maybe yes. that's why this was like a Silicon Valley thing because, you know, you've got people over there, you know, working all day in, in a stressful environment and trying trying to do lots of difficult things. Maybe it's not a coincidence that that was the, the population that seemed to uh, gravitate towards this. It's actually interesting. Now, um, I'm doing some talks about microdosing as well. And so I digged into when the first microdosing experiments were actually happening. And I, I believe that it is as old as uh, psychedelics, because if you look at the native uh, Americans, they were uh, using peyote as, uh, as their psychedelic uh, experience that, uh, and those peyote bots, they, they have uh, mescaline in them. And you actually need to have uh, 10 or 12 peyote bots to have a full dose of mescaline hmm. to have a psychedelic trip. But what they were doing uh, during the day was actually just going around chewing one 
when they were going hunting and stuff like that. So I think if you're chewing one peyote butt, that is probably equal to a microdose. Hmm. Yeah, and if it's having some kind of uh, stress resilience effect, um, th- then it might be useful in that kind of context. If you haven't eaten for a long time and are out hunting and trying to find food enough for your family and stuff like that, so they they traced these uh, peyote butts and the use of these peyote butts back to uh, five thousand seven hundred BC. So <laughs> it's been used. Uh, yeah, people have been using this stuff for a long time. Yeah. Wow. So, um, what what are you guys doing now? To what, what sort of what, how are you going to build on this ex- set of experiments? Actually, doing a we have quite a few studies with. Uh, that are not published yet, but with high doses of psilocybin in rats as well, and trying to look at some of the same circuits and also see uh, see changes in the thalamus as one of the big regions when we when we uh, treat the animals with a high dose of psilocybin and then wait a week and then trying to look with again with PET scannings and see how are the circuits developing, where are the different uh, changes in the brain happening and we look at the thalamus and see that stuff is going on there as well with a high dose um, and then we have yeah oh no i was just gonna say so when you saw these changes in the the paraventricular nucleus of the thalamus did that surprise you were you expecting to see something in that particular region or or was it was it kind of a surprise uh, it was a surprise to us that it was in that region. We were uh, deliberately looking in the regions that were part of this circuit that uh, compulsive actions were made of, because we we know that that was where we were going to look if we saw an effect of compulsive actions. So up front, we were going to look in the thalamus, um, and then the frontal cortex, the striatum, and and mm-hmm. those regions. And then, you know, it sort of sounded like you were saying, you know, you found this change in the 5-HT7 receptor in this particular region of the brain. It sounded like you guys looked for all sorts of different changes in different receptors, but you didn't see, many of them didn't show a change. Was was that, is that a fair summary? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we didn't see changes on the 5-HT2A or 5-HT2C receptors. Uh, we also looked for the 5 ht all receptors and didn't see anything. I don't recall. I don't think that's in the manuscript, but we didn't see anything. We also didn't have any affinity to the 5-HT4 receptors. Um, yeah, so we, we looked at a lot of different uh, different things. Um, and then now we have also begin to look at uh, other types of psychedelic drugs and looking at if we can uh, actually figure out, because psilocybin is kind of, it's gained status as the gold standard of psychedelic drugs, more or less, right? Mm-hmm. If we go on in the world, probably every, if we're going to do a comparison between two drugs, like uh, psilocybin will be one, and then you're going to compare to another one and see which is better. Um, so we are starting to look into some of these drugs uh, and just which, looked which into. Ones? Yeah, we we just looked into uh, a form of ayahuasca, but uh doing it with pharmaceuticals so it's called pharma huasca mm-hmm. we mix the marrow inhibitor with uh, dmt and then we try and see uh, see the effects on the brain and see if we get uh, increased dmt in the brain when we mix it with the the marrow inhibitor that is that's those two drugs are usually the ones that are combined in ayahuasca and yeah for the first 
uh, first couple of experiments, we did a pilot study just to see if we could increase DMT in the brain by mixing these drugs together. And that it seemed to work fine. So now we can pass on and go on and experience that kind of cocktail a little bit more. Interesting. Um, are you doing anything with mescaline? Not yet. Uh, I really want to do something with mescaline. We have done studies with LSD, 5-MeO-DMT, uh, and DMT, and 4-hydroxy-DIPT four, four also. Um, and mescaline, we we want to because it's a different kind of structural uh, structure. The drug has a different kind of structure. Uh, but I don't think we will end up using mescaline because it has a really low affinity for the 5-HC2A receptor. And mm. we're going to probably have some derivatives that has higher affinity for the 5-HC2A receptor. And in that regard, actually, also a long time ago, we, when we developed these uh, agonist radio tracers to the brain, we actually found one one drug that had a really high affinity towards the 5-HC2A receptor and was very selective to the 5-HC2A receptor. So one of the, the N-bomb compounds called the 25-CN N-bomb, mm-hmm. it binds really strongly to the 5-HC2A receptor and it's really selective and doesn't bind to anything else. So, Is that the one that gives people very long duration trips? Yes, and usually also uh, very unpleasant. Mm. And there's been a few reports of uh, people also dying from it. So it, I wouldn't recommend anyone doing that. I see, I see. Interesting. So as opposed to the other psychedelics like psilocybin, that one is very selective for 2A. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, so what? psilocybin or psilocin basically binds to most of the serotonin receptors, but this drug only binds to one. And um, yeah, people yeah. report that it's uh, quite unpleasant and other people have been dying from it. So don't do that. Mm-hmm. And like, obviously right now, all of this work with psychedelics and related compounds, uh, it's getting a lot of attention. People are very excited. Um, people are, many people are very hopeful that these could be um, a very effective alternative to the many psychiatric medications that we use today that are not that effective or not effective as we would like them to be. Um, h- how excited are you in terms of psychedelics or psychedelic derivatives turning into, you know, prescribed and widely used psychiatric medications in humans, do you think it's a it's a very? Are you very excited? Are you skeptical? Is is how much of this is hype? I'm pretty excited about it. It's actually one of the first times uh, where we have seen improvements in treatment options for psychiatric diseases. But I also think that it comes with a lot of of problems that we may have not seen before, because for these drugs to be effective, I really believe that you need to have a, a good therapeutic session as well. So you need to have a, a therapy um, in order for them to actually work uh, work in a nice way. And that comes with a problem, right? Because then we need to have a lot of therapists, and that is uh, an expensive way of treating people compared to when you just give them a drug and say, go home and take this for two weeks and then you feel better. Then you need to start and incorporate the therapy into uh, to treatment. But I also think that is a really good thing because therapy by itself also helps people, right? So um, I think uh, it, it's going to show some really nice things in the future if we get 
if we can get hold of how these two things are going to be matched with one another. And maybe you don't need to give people a, a, a super high dose. It could be that they need a microdose or a, a small dose that is just a little bit psychedelic, and that will be uh, very effective as well. Um, and maybe there's different doses for different conditions um, that could also be. What do you think are some of the key questions in psychedelic neuroscience right now that, that people are or should be pursuing? What, what, are, what are some of the questions that... Um, that we'll ha- we'll get answers to, but are still there are still big question marks in terms of how these drugs are working. I think side effects are one of the really big ones. Uh, we simply don't know a lot of the side effects that could happen. Um, so, what are the yeah? How are this and psychosis related? Is it related at all? Uh, we need to know that if we need to start treating people uh, and or not treat people that are in danger in that way. Then in case of microdosing, there's a lot more complications because we give a drug. There's there's a huge difference in giving a drug once and then not giving it again compared to giving a drug every day or every second day for six months or longer. Mm-hmm. So people haven't, there's a, not a lot of people who have been doing this. There's a lot of people who have been uh, taking high doses and we know it's relatively safe, but there's not a lot of people who have been doing microdosing, even though it seems uh, so on the internet, but we don't know anything about what are the long-term consequences actually of taking microdoses of uh, of psychedelic drugs or psilocybin um, on your health. It could be targeting um, the serotonergic uh, receptors in your heart. It's actually called serotonin because it, it was discovered in blood, right? So it, it's from serum. And uh, that's why you discovered uh, serotonin. So there is a lot of serotonin in your blood. And that's so, a lot so, of the- so, so, so like uh, the etymology, like serotonin as in serum or like serotype or a word like that. Yes, exactly. I see. I see. So there's a potential heart issue. Yeah, I've heard about this. Like apparently some of these drugs bind the 5-HT2B receptor, which is in the heart and yes. other drugs that do this have been linked to. Yeah, but also issues. just the 5-HT2A receptor will, uh, that's a vasoconstrictor. So it will, uh, mm. it will increase your blood pressure and your heart rate uh, when you take it. Right. Uh, and we know that from high doses of psilocybin that it will do that. Uh, but what are the consequences if you do that over a long time? Mm-hmm. We don't know. <clears throat> and spe- specifically, the 5-HT2B receptor is uh, very expressed in the heart. And if you stimulate that, we know that from some of the weight loss compounds in the 80s uh, that were stimulating this receptor, uh, they got taken off the off the market because they were giving um, valvular heart disease, so it enlarged the muscles in the heart. Um, so it, it could be an, uh, a big issue. Uh, and people just haven't um, looked into that a lot. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Um, is there anything that you want to reiterate or, or say again, based on uh, the conversation we've had so far that you think people should, should remember and take away? Hmm. I am not on the top of my head. No. So I guess the cliff notes on your experiments are, in rats, you figured out how to give them a microdose that's a true microdose, 
you've got clear behavioral effects and changes in the brain. So microdosing psychedelics in animals and non-human animals is doing something. Yes. Um, it seems like it's doing something pretty interesting that could be relevant for you know treating different things like compulsive behaviors or anxiety or distress resilience, that whole sort of family of of issues. And so it sounds like you said this makes this does make you a little bit more hopeful that microdosing psychedelics in humans may be doing something. We haven't we haven't pinpointed that yet, but there could be a there there. Exactly. Yeah, that's uh, that would be the the take home message of that paper. And I, but I really also want to stress out that uh, people should really be seeking uh, seeking counseling or seeking conversations with other people before just throwing themselves out into doing microdosing or high doses. It may not be a therapist or a psychiatrist. It could also be a good friend or something else. But it's really important to go out and talk about your mental health problems uh, or issues or problems at all with other people because that will help you uh, in the long run and get better. So I think now yesterday was mental health day and we should really try and be more open about our mental health uh, in general and be better at talking about I'm feeling stressful or I I have a bit of anxiety or, or whatever it is, then uh, it, it, we should be better at talking about it. All right. Well, Dr. Mikhail Palmer, thank you for your time. Welcome. take a minute to tell you about a really cool health monitoring device I've been using for several weeks. It's called Lumen and it's a handheld pocket-sized device with a sleek design. It measures CO2 levels in your breath, which allows their technology to determine the extent to which your body is burning fats versus carbohydrates. Lumen helps improve your metabolic flexibility, your body's efficiency in shifting between using fats and carbs. It improves your ability to burn fat, which decreases your hunger levels and makes your body less dependent on snacking, and it can increase your energy levels by helping you develop a high-functioning metabolism. I use this device in the morning, before bed, and after meals and workouts to track my metabolism. With just a couple weeks of use, I learned a lot about which foods were causing my body to burn mostly fat, mostly carbs, or both, as well as how long I need to fast each day to promote fat burning. Lumen is great for anyone looking to optimize their health for either weight loss or athletic performance. The easy-to-use app allows you to track your results together with what you're eating and how you're exercising, and it syncs with other devices like the Apple Watch. Click the link in the episode description to learn more and use the code MIND, M-I-N-D, in all capital letters, to get $50 off your Lumen device today.